to Mind Crime Liberty Show with me, Swithin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Keith Preston to discuss, is Thomas Hobbes right? Thomas Hobbes, one of the major uh, theorists of the state and very much a uh, an anti-anarchist, as it were. Uh, so is he, but basically, is he right, Tim? Hobbes is one of the greatest political thinkers out there, and I've been aware of him for a while. Uh, I first had to read this in college, and I would argue that Hobbes is probably the best, you know, in use the libertarian parlance, statist out there. Um, um, and in Hobbes, he defends the state in his text, The Leviathan. Um, um, and, and you, Keith Preston, as an anarchist of some variety for a while, uh, you, you've defended anarchism, of course. So naturally, I would think Hobbes in some ways is the best critic of anarchism if anarchism is going to oppose the state. So before before I start asking questions of whether Hobbes is right, I'm going to read a short text from what I'd say the heart of Hobbes' argument. Uh, this is from page 77 of, I think, the Gutenberg Library. Um, Therefore, if any two men desire the same thing, which nevertheless they cannot both enjoy, they become enemies. And in, in the way to their end, which is a principle of their own conservation, endeavor to destroy or subdue one another. Um, um, now that Hobbes continues on a little longer, um, but I'm going to shorten this somewhat. Um, but the, the key the key thing is Hobbes eventually comes around to the argument says we need to have common power to keep everyone in awe, or else we'll have war, we'll have short lives, brutality, and so forth. Um, and the you know when we don't have this, this is known as peace. And that and that and that common power that is going to keep us all in in awe, based on Hobbes's text, is the state or the Leviathan. Um, so Keith, do you think Thomas Hobbes is right about uh, this. Keith Preston as an anarchist. Do you think Thomas Hobbes is right about, you know, the necessity of the state and the the fact that the state is the thing that keeps us peaceful and from killing other and have all these sort of brutalism? Keith? Well, when it comes to Hobbes, uh, I think there's several things that have to be separated from each other. First, you have to separate his critique of uh, a stateless society from his actual wider view of, of human nature, if you will. And you also have to separate uh, his critique of statelessness with his prescription. Uh, and you don't necessarily have to accept one of these, to, or you don't have to necessarily accept all of these to accept one of them. Uh, I, I would argue that his view of human nature is largely correct in the sense that he sees human beings as competitive creatures that are at war with each other for resources and power and influence and status and, and all kinds of things. And also that human beings uh, group off into de facto tribes or warring groups of some kind that get into con conflict with each other over all of the things that I just listed. Uh, of course, as we know, he was writing within the context of the Civil War and what you had going on there, the, well, the English Civil War for the, our American listeners. Um, with, what he was uh, referring to there was you had all of these different groups, uh, religious communities in England that were fighting for uh, control of the government. Uh, and there were also issues of not only religion, but also uh, dynastic legitimacy and things like that. So his observation by from looking at all of this, you know, all of these different people fighting over you know, different claims of legitimacy or theological um, soundness or whatever, is that human beings are simply irrational creatures 
that like to fight about all kinds of stuff, and that's what people do. Now, what Hobbes was concerned about was how are you going to have a functional society when you've got this going on, when you've got people in, in society that are driven by passions and emotions and a lack of reason and that are um, constantly struggling for power based on their own needs and interests. Um, what are you going to do to have an actual functioning society as far as the big picture goes in order to avoid a perpetual state of civil war? And Hobbes's solution was, well, the government has to have absolute power. Now, I don't really think Hobbes necessarily would have been in favor of a totalitarian state of the modern kind, like, say, North Korea or something like that, where the state creeps into every area of life, you know, what's, what's Mussolini saying of everything of the state, nothing outside the state or whatever. Uh, Hobbes is somewhat, is often interpreted that way. I don't really think that's what he meant. Uh, but he was more or less in favor of what would be called an absolute monarchy, the idea that, well, there's got to be one person in charge, uh, and that person has got to be there to uh, keep order and keep all of these different uh, sectarian groups from fighting with each other, because if we don't have order, then we're not going to have anything else. We're not going to have civilization. We're not going to have culture. We're not going to have any kind of economy. Um, Hobbes was different from a lot of political theorists that came before him, because um, Hobbes was not particularly motivated by things like uh, religion or uh, a philosophy of virtue or any of that kind of stuff. Like if you go back and you look at the uh, some of the thinkers from antiquity like Aristotle, or if you look at some of the medieval thinkers like or early Christian thinkers like the patristic church fathers like Augustine, you, you see in their thinking they're all about, well, how are we going to have the most virtuous society? You know, what is the good life? All of that kind of stuff. Hobbes wasn't really worried about that. He was like, well, we'll get to that later. What we have to have, first of all, is we have to have order. And we have to get it through putting someone in charge that's going to keep order. Um, of course, Hobbes's ideas coincide with the rise of the Westphalian state. Um, they, in fact, the Thirty Years' War, I guess, would have happened roughly the, during the same time that Hobbes was alive. And it was during this time period, that you, the early modern period in Europe, that you had the uh, wars of religion. So you had all, in, not just in England, but you had in other countries, uh, wars between Catholics and Protestants over who's going to um, be entitled to rule and whose religion is correct. And of course, that was always intermixed with other conflicts as well, uh, political and economic and all of that. So out of that is really how we get the modern idea of the state, this idea that came out of the West, uh, out of the Treaty of Westphalia that only the sovereign, the king, has the right to wage war. Uh, before that, everybody could wage war, uh, you know, pirates and mercenaries and uh, feudal lords and families and all kinds of people were involved in waging war. And it was through this Westphalian system that you started to see these absolute monarchies develop that had a monopoly on war. Um, and that's largely how the modern concept of the state emerges, the idea that well, the state is the institution that has a, mon uh, a monopoly on the exercise of violence, uh, which was how Max Weber, the, the sociologist, defined the state. Um, and now that was, you know, that, that was Hobbes' solution to the problem of disorder. Uh, he did not believe in 
some sort of a priori or or naturalistic system of ethics that imposed political obligation. You know, he came up with this theory called the social contract theory, which amounted to the idea, well, by accepting the benefits of living in civilization, uh, for example, protection of, of, from crime by the law, you know, the idea that, well, not just anybody who wants to can kill you or rob you or whatever. By accepting these benefits of civilization, you implicitly uh, agree to submit to the laws of the wider society. So there's this uh, uh, un unwritten, implicit social contract idea. That's basic Hobbes. And then this becomes the basis of modern political philosophy. Uh, the social contract theory was uh, built on by su subsequent thinkers like Locke and Rousseau and, and all of those people. Uh, but but it's still the core idea. Hobbes's core idea is still really the basis of most modern political theory. Um, you know, talk to any person with mainstream political views, a liberal, a conservative, or whatever. With Marxists, it's a little bit different, and, and fascists and, and modern totalitarians, they have a somewhat different theory of the state. But most mainstream political ideologies today, there. If you ask them, you know, why should you obey the law or something like that? They will give you what amounts to a, a Hobbesian argument. They'll say, well, without law, you know, there's not going to be any order and everybody's going to kill everybody else. And, and there's going to be chaos and we can't have civilization. And, you know, your grandmother's going to get you know, gang raped and whatever. You know, that's I mean, that's the that's the common argument you get against anarchism, for example, from lay people. You know, just talk to a lay person. And say, you know, I think we should just abolish all government. They'll they'll say, well, you're crazy. All all these awful things are going to happen. Um, and they're essentially, I mean, even though most people who would say that probably have never heard of Hobbes, uh, they're essentially repeating Hobbes's argument. Right. So that's that's the argument. I think it's important to understand the actual argument when you're critiquing Hobbes. Um, now, the, the big problem with Hobbes is. He thought that on one hand, people are just so bad that the government has to have absolute power in order to restrain human behavior. Otherwise, n nothing good can exist. Now, the obvious problem with that is, well, OK, who's going to restrain the restrainer? Um, you know, Hobbes had this idea of the sovereign, which in the you know, in early modern political theory just basically meant the king or the, the monarch, the, ab the absolute monarch. He had this idea, well, the sovereign has absolute authority, and then he rules like this uh, dragon, you know, this like the, like the uh, metaphor he used was the Leviathan. It's like the, a biblical dragon, like a sea monster. Um, the the sovereign rules like a as a as this dragon-like figure that has all encompassing power to punish uh, bad people or aggressive people. So um, the big question there is, who's going to police the the, the sovereign who's going to police Leviathan. And if we look at modern states um, of the kind that have existed over the past century, we see that, uh, that you know, while it's certainly true, people can, individual people can cause lots of harm and, and violence between groups can certainly cause harm. And we can look at places like, say, Syria, where you have a civil war going on between dozens of factions. Uh, we can also look at states that have existed um, in different contexts and see, well, the state can cause a lot of harm as well. Uh, most people, most modern people would agree with that when it comes to, say, something like the Third Reich, Stalinist Russia, 
maybe present day North Korea, maybe Pol Pot during the uh, during the uh, genocide of the Khmer Rouge. Uh, most people, however, tend to think that modern democratic republics are legitimate forms of government. In fact, it's usually considered to be the only legitimate form of government. If you ask, you know, lay people or academics, you know, things like, uh, well, you know, what is a legitimate form of government? Is an absolute monarchy a legitimate form of government? Is a hereditary aristocracy a legitimate form of government? Is a military dictatorship? Is a theocracy? Is any of that a legitimate form of government? They would, most of them would say, oh, no, no, no. Only democracy, you know, as, as they define it, only that is a legitimate form of government. Um, so, in, in a sense, modern political theory is anarchistic in the sense that it rejects most forms of government as illegitimate except one, which is this, you know, democratic, republic, liberal democratic, parliamentarian type of system that most modern countries have. It's just assumed that that's the best humanity can ever do and that that's really the only legitimate form of government and all these other systems were bad. Yeah, but fortunately we got rid of all those and now we've got democracy and aren't we wonderful and, and we can all live have happily ever after. Um, now, the issue for someone like me who is an anarchist is I like to criticize these modern systems of liberal democracy or democratic republics and say, well, maybe some of those have the same kinds of problems that some of these older systems have. Um, and or maybe they just aren't widely recognized or maybe they are, uh, but ignored. Um, and, and to what degree would it be possible to do away with government in the modern sense and have anarchism of some type or a purely voluntary society or a purely libertarian society, whatever that would involve. So I guess, you know, I'll, I'll end it here for now because I've already said quite a bit, but that's generally, you know, how I see the, the problems with Hobbes. Keith, to what extent do you think um, sort of Hobbes is a moralism um informed his political uh sort of views as a whole and the, and the role of the state if you thought if he was a sort of a, a moral realist in the sense of some of the classical thinkers do you think that would have changed his view of uh the nature and role of the state or do you think he would have held the same leviathan position for uh, for other reasons well it's difficult to say because I, I I think if he were here right now and we could talk to him, he would probably say that the problem he observed was that there was way too much moral realism in his own time. He would probably look at it and say, OK, look, we've got all these moral realists over here, all these different religious sects who you know, are certain that their particular theological interpretations are correct. Uh, you know, not only that, but we've got all these other people who are conservatives in a traditional sense who think who appeal to uh, legitimacy based on tradition and all these kinds of things. And I, he would say, well, that's you know, that's where moral realism gets you. We've we've got too many moral fanatics trying to impose their own will. And what we've got to have is somebody who can simply restrain all of these kinds of people. Uh, I, I think he saw uh, funda people as fundamentally non-moral. Uh, yeah, he, he, in many ways, he reminds me of Max Stirner, even if he came to t polar opposite conclusions about the state, because he seems to have had a very, you know, Stirner-like view of human nature. You know, human beings are ego-driven cre creatures. They, you know, they do whatever suits their own interests. 
Uh, and he, he would probably privately have agreed with Stirner's idea that all these other abstractions or like morality or justice or whatever are, are spooks, as, as Stirner called them. But he would also probably agree with Plato that they're no, noble lies. You know, they're, they're fables that can be used to you know, basically keep otherwise dangerous people at bay. Um, he, the idea, you know, like I said, he is interesting because he is a departure from these older, um, well, he and Machiavelli as, as well are, are, are a departure from classical and medieval political theory because they're not interested in this question of what is the ends of politics in terms of virtue and morals and ethics and things like that. You know, Machiavelli, of course, believed that politics is a fundamentally amoral enterprise. His view is that, you know, being a good politician is no different than being a good mafiosi, basically. Uh, it's just all about, you know, power and maintaining it. That, you know, if you don't do that, then all the rest of it is a waste of time. Uh, and Hobbes seems to have taken Machiavelli's core idea and applied it to this wider question of, well, how do you have actual order in society? Not, not just simply how do you conduct statecraft effectively, but how do you actually have order in the wider society? Um, you know, I don't, you know, Hobbes' lack of moral realism, I think, really shapes his entire mode of thought. So, I, you know, he wouldn't be Hobbes if he, he, if he had, wasn't a moral skeptic. Uh, I, mean, sure. kind of like, I guess to add to that, it's kind of like saying, you know, what would Nietzsche be like if he was a Christian? You know, I mean, it's kind of like, well, it would be it would defeat the whole purpose. That wouldn't be Nietzsche. Zooming out somewhat, um, you said the like who watches the Watchmen, which is sort of the classical critique of this, one of the classic critiques of the state. And one of the things that in terms of political science, political science would describe the modern state system as being anarchic. And they'll use this in a negative word. Um, and, and the John Bertrand, which is a name that sometimes gets bugaboo, you actually get bugaboo for being uh, at times sympathetic. And I think the conclusions are somewhat theoretically correct. Is one of the problems with modern states is they are, or features or bugs, they are anarchic in between them. You know, Austria, you know, Syria, U.S., uh, Turkey. Now you could you could debate whether some of these are vassals of the United States, and I agree. But there are such things as sovereign autonomous states. So one of the one of the problems I think the classical liberals have, I think, is that a lot of their arguments infer, especially thanks to technology. Now you could argue technology isn't as good as we say it is, um, and we're still in an area where it's not possible to actually have a one world government of some kind. But it would it would seem to a lot of the Hobbesian arguments seem to point to a one world government, at least in many areas. Um, and, and this, to me, becomes a continuum problem where you have enough areas where it's, it, it's functionally becomes a one world government. You, can, you see this shows up in the climate change. You need a, a global carbon program or glo same with a global migration program. You see even even vaccines recently, you see, well, everyone needs. So you see, you see a lot of issues where a lot of the classical liberal arguments, which were sort of localist at the time, but now they seem to point to a wider areas. Would you agree with that general? interpretation um and, and and if and is that is that is that the way it's going um in that regard and what would be your attack on the um hobbesian to the classical liberal hobbesians there so then keith well yeah i mean if you take hobbes's arguments to their logical conclusion then you you would have to argue for a global state a global sovereign uh, in fact some years ago probably about probably about 10 years ago 
I gave a talk to a, a right wing group, a far right wing kind of nationalist group. And uh, I started off my talk by saying, you're probably wondering why an anarchist is here speaking to a group of nationalists. And I said, well, okay, if you're a nationalist, that means you're opposed to a, a, a global state. So if you are opposed to a global state, you just believe in an anarchy of nations, then you're already got a foot in the door to being an anarchist. You know, you just need to step a few steps further and, and you'll be there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we, that's, the global system is essentially that. It's, well, you could say the United States since, post, since uh, World War II has been a type of leviathan. Uh, but not not formally. Um, we could say that uh, traditionally different nations are essentially sovereign entities, and uh, the the, inter, the international system is a type of anarchy. Uh, of course, many modern liberals and others think that that's bad. They want to have a global governmental system. I mean, that's why you often see so many people, uh, liberals and others, trying to strengthen international institutions like the United Nations, or barring that, they take the neocon point of view and just want to have a, uh, you know, a, a unipolar, uh, unilateral American hegemony or something like that. Um, but that, once again, gets to the question of power. Um, you know, if you, you, were, you could probably ask most rightward-leaning people in the, in the Western world, well, what would you think of the idea of a global democratic state? Then most of them, if they thought about it, would probably say, well, no, that would suck because that means India and China would, would always win, you know, they, because they have the most people and therefore the most votes. Um, and most liberals, you know, champion this idea of international law and, and global rule of law and things like that. But most of the time, they don't really apply it very consistently. They don't typically apply it to their own states um, or they engage in you know, one or another type of special pleading uh, you know, based on their own ideological biases. Uh, so I don't know that there's really that many people who would really like the kind of system that a global state would actually produce. Uh, you know, because it would be something basically, you know, if you're a Westerner, it would be something where the third world countries essentially were dominant because they're the, they have the most people. Um, or it would be, um, you know, some other, you know, have other features that people, um, you know, most modern people would not approve of. Uh, for example, the social conservatism of the, of the underdeveloped world would be uh, imported to the West on a much more easily, ba much easier basis. Um, but when it comes to, so, so if you accept the idea of an anarchy of nations, then there's no real ideological barrier to an anarchy of individuals or an anarchy of communities or an anarchy of cities or an anarchy of families or an anarchy of faith communities or an anarchy of businesses. Um, and I, I think that this is something that, um, that most modern political theorists completely miss. In fact, most of them have never even considered any of these questions. I've had conversations with PhD level um, you know, political science professors and, and so forth who, who've never even thought of some of these issues. You know, when I, when I raised them, I'll raise some of these issues. They just accept this idea that the, the liberal theory of the state is correct, almost like it's divine revelation or something. It's sort of like the modern version of the, of the divine right of Keynes. Um, 
But if you're if you're not a global a proponent of a global state, you are a type of anarchist, and at least in terms of advocating a, an anarchy of nations. Now, of course, those of us who are serious anarchists want to break that down even more, preferably to the individual level. Keith, how would you respond to the um, uh, detractor, a critic of uh, anarchism, that um, any of the so-called uh, anarchist um, societies that you could have which are non-stateless, stateless would still require within it a um, a, a sovereign law or, or a sovereign body which determines what the law will be in such a geographical area. And so then they could then claim that, well, actually you haven't really got rid of the state, although I suppose you could argue this is a terminological dispute of what actually constitutes a state, <clears throat> but at least in so recognizing like a a separate uh, community which is sort of internally coherent requires to some extent uh, an overarching common body of law um couldn't you then make the claim that actually what you're actually arguing for is instead having uh, as it were a state on the smallest possible level rather than its absence well there's a lot of issues with that um First of all, there are some anarchists that would basically argue that any kind of rules at all are statist or authoritarian, at least. You do have people that believe that. Uh, for instance, you have people that are fans of what's called anarcho-primitivism who will say that, yeah, you know, the only way we can really be free of the state is to go back and live like prehistoric people and who pretty much just kind of rove, ran around in bands and did their own thing. and. And that's what we should be going for. So there are people who believe that. Now, I don't think that that's something that uh, too many people would accept. Um, there's also the question of uh, of exit costs. You know, for example, there's the idea that, well, if you choose to voluntarily join a community and not leave that community, are you obligated to go by the community's rules? The, the more concentrated power becomes, the harder it is to make that argument. For instance, in the United States, there's this tradition among hyper patriotic types where they say, well, if you don't like it here, leave, you know, love it or leave it. You know, that was a big thing during the 60s, during the anti-Vietnam War era and all that. You know, if you love America or leave it. Um, well, when you have a continent wide state, that's a bit difficult. Now. If uh, you live in a neighborhood and you really hate your neighbors, then, yeah, you know, uh, leaving your neighborhood is an option. I'm going somewhere else. Uh, so I think the, the real question with that is uh, is concentrations of power. You know, the more power concent is concentrated, the harder it is to evade power. Uh, in fact, I believe Socrates more or less thought this was the basis of political legitimacy. Meaning that, OK, if you're free to leave the city, the polis, and take your property and your family with you, uh, then you're obligated to obey the laws of the city as long as you want to stay in the city. Uh, otherwise, go elsewhere. Uh, so there's a question of how, you know, how voluntary uh, is a particular community and how low are exit cost? Is exit something feasible? Uh, that's one thing. There, there are also other types of anarchists who believe that only codified systems of law constitute a state. They will say, well, in many societies, you have customary norms where uh, people you know, uh, uh, 
agree to engage in certain behavior or not engage in certain behavior based on custom rather than on law. And there may be penalties for uh, not following a particular custom or norm, but it's not the same thing as a law because nobody's going to put you in jail. Uh, for instance, in, in some of our modern societies, we have a custom where it's a bad idea to have bad table manners. You know, if you're somebody that has bad table manners, you know, if you go in a public restaurant and you just have really atrocious table manners, well, people are going to uh, look at that in a negative way. Gonna, they may look askance at that. They may, you know, make a, a scowl at you. You know, they may not want to sit next to you or shake your hand or, you know, be your friend or something like that. Uh, but they're not going to arrest you or put you in jail or send you to uh, the electric chair or the lethal injection or whatever. Uh, so there, there are, that's another argument that some anarchists make. Uh, another issue is it's not really a state if it's not a monopoly. And this is where you get into things like polycentric legal systems and what's called panarchic legal systems. And these kinds of things have actually existed. This isn't just stuff that's fantasy or somebody came up with on paper. Uh, there have been historically legal systems where different um, legal systems are essentially in competition with each other. Uh, during the Middle Ages in Europe, you had bits and pieces of this. You had manorial law, you had canon law, you had uh, you know whatever other kinds of law. Or uh, in, even in something like the Ottoman Empire, which was te technically a Muslim empire under Sharia law, you still had this thing they called the Malay system, which was um, where different religious communities more or less governed themselves according to their own customs. You know, if they weren't Muslim, you know, rather than saying that all Christians and all Jews and all whatever Zoroastrians or whatever had to go by Islamic law, when they say, okay, well, you you folks. You just do your own thing according to your own customs or norms. Um, and we even see bits and pieces of that, too, today. Uh, you know, we see that sometimes businesses will have arbitration systems of their own that they use to settle their own disputes rather than going through the state's legal system. I think in the United States, some of the Orthodox Jewish communities uh, have their own uh, religious courts, which I, I guess are not legally binding, but, you know, they they use this to settle disputes and problems among themselves uh, because they all share the same basic uh, religious perspective. And I've heard that Muslim communities in Europe actually have this. So uh, that's another example. It's argued that th this is not really a state if it's not monopolistic. So there's there are, the, the point being is that there are different um, views among anarchists on what is actually required for a state and what statelessness would look like. There's no real consensus on that. You wrote a book, which I've read now, uh, Thinkers Against Modernity. In there you have Carl Schmitt, um, and this is somewhat a follow-up on the uh, on the uh, issue, uh, the, uh, the question that uh, Swithin just asked, um, you know, to a certain extent what the law is. And one of the areas, you you tend to agree with Hobbes, from my understanding, with him on a, the sort of amoralism or the, the moral uh, sort of, the, sort of, as also to extent with the Hobbes, I think in your debate with um, uh, Brent and Ben Burgess, you, you, you describe yourself as a moral skeptic. Um, and I think Hobbes, it, considering the fact that he needs a, um, um, considering the fact that he needs a, a Leviathan to keep everyone order. Now the question is who you know keeps Leviathan order, which is probably the 
essential question here, um, you know, who keeps the Wyatt in, in order. But as far as, you know, what, what is the relationship between, um, uh, you know, the, the thinkers that you profiled in Thinkers Against Modernity um, um, and Thomas Hobbes? Are they, are they, are they, are they in the same lineage? Um, you know, and it's someone like um, Carl Schmidt and uh, Stirner, you know, what, what are your, some areas of agreement and disagreement? Uh, well, I think you've asked several questions in one. Uh, as far as the, the figures that I profile in that book, Thinkers Against Modernity, uh, by the way, that's not an anarchistic book. That's not intended to be uh, a book on anarchist theory. Um, what, the reason I put that out is because I was always interested in thinkers that did critique modern systems of so-called liberal democracy. Because all of us are taught from day one by the educational system, by the media, by the government, by universities, by virtually everything, the entire culture that, you know, democracy is the best there is. It's all there is. It's the ultimate in human achievement. Um, I, I was always interested in thinkers who actually reject that view, that thinkers who said no liberalism, democracy, or the, the modern hybrid of the two is not the best system or is not the only system, you know. Uh, what did thinkers from the past who were critics of mass democracy as it was being introduced, what did they have to say about it? Uh, thinkers who exist today who are critics, uh, what do they have to say? Now, the people that are profiled in that book don't share a common political view at all. All of them are just simply critics of modern, modern society and modern political systems and modern culture. Uh, included in that are, you know, I did, like I included Cornelia Codrigano, who was a fascist, a Romanian fascist. I included uh, Aline de Benoit, a figure from the uh, French New Right. Uh, I included, uh, I believe I have a section on uh, on Belloc and Chesterton, who were Catholic traditionalists. And I've got a piece on Schmidt in there. I believe I have a piece on Aleister Crowley. Uh, so there's a huge range of diversity among all of these different thinkers, but just the common thread is they were critics of modern societies. Um, so I want to clarify what that book is actually about. Um, the as far as Hobbes and, and Schmidt, what, 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 what was your what was the second part of your question? Um, what areas are Hobbes and Schmidt? Because what's interesting to me about Schmidt is is well, first of all, Schmidt I think sees through liberal democracy and for today, the only state that is really defended is a liberal democracy. Right, exactly. You know, I mean, Schmidt sees through it, and liberal democracies are the ruling states today. We don't, we're not, we don't have any absolute monarchies laying around. So the anarchist project would have to, if it would, it would move forward, the biggest obstacle is not monarchy, it's liberal democracy. So that, that's why I think Schmidt's interesting in that book. Yes, exactly. And that was one of the main reasons I put that book out was because – if, if you're an anarchist who takes anarchist theory seriously, then that then liberal democracy is really the main enemy. Uh, if we look at all the different countries around the world today, there's 195 countries that are considered to be sovereign nations. And I think there's a few dozen more that are kind of so so. Uh, and nowadays, the majority of countries are liberal democracies. Uh, the ones that aren't are typically these uh, holdover, you know, quasi monarchical royal systems like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and all that, or uh, the, the few remaining communist regimes, China, Cuba, Vietnam, North Korea, Laos. Uh, and there's, I think there's a few maybe absolute monarchies like Brunei comes close to that. Um, 
I think um, Bhutan kind of sort of is that. But um, that's obviously the exception rather than the rule. Uh, so if we want to critique modern states, we really do have to critique liberal democracy. Um, in fact, uh, I wrote a review of Hans Hermann Hoppe's Democracy That God Failed about 20 years ago when, I, when it came out. And uh, at the time, I thought Hoppe was more innovative than I'd probably claim today. More and more, the more I study political theory, the more Hobbes, I mean, the more Hoppe seems to have largely uh, re regurgitated a lot of stuff from Eric von Kunat Ladin and Eric Vogelin and some other people like that. Uh, but I still think the core idea stands, and that is we need to look at the weaknesses of liberal democratic theory. Um, in fact, I remember one time years ago, I had a professor who was a specialist in intellectual history, and he had actually known Carl Schmitt personally and, and wrote a biographical work on him. And um, I mentioned that I had an interest in Schmitt, and he asked me, you know, how did you ever develop an interest in that? And I said, well, you know, I'm interested in criticizing modern modern systems of liberal democracy. You know, I think they're overrated. And of course, he came to, you know, gave me this uh, kind of looked at askance at that and said, you know, like, what are you, a fascist? You know, but uh, uh, but the uh, um, but I think the core idea there is that you know, we, there are many things about modern liberal democracy that merit that aren't criticized that should be criticized. Um, you know, we, we hear uh, all the time uh, this idea that the right to vote is sacred. You know, it's like the most sacred right there is. Uh, it's so sacred that a third of the a third to a half of the U.S. public that's legally eligible to vote doesn't doesn't vote. So if it's so sacred, why is there such little interest in it? Um, so I, I think that that's really the value of some of these thinkers is, uh, you know, their critique of liberal democracy. As far as the relationship between Hobbes and Stirner, they're both moral skeptics. They both have this egoistic view of human nature, but um, they take it in op polar opposite directions. And that probably had something to do with the time period in which they lived. Um, Hobbes lived in the early modern period during the time of the wars of religion. And what he saw was, I mean, I mean, Europe during that time was like the Middle East today. It was all these different sectarian religious groups killing each other over, you know, who's, who's, uh, whose flag is going to um, fly over the palace or whatever. Uh, and he's like, look, we can't have this. We've got to have order. We've got to have organization. Uh, and somebody's got to be in charge. So he seems to have been in favor of a sort of a Saddam Hussein like a figure who's going to repress all of this kind of stuff, uh, wars of religion. Um, and on the other hand, uh, Stirner was a, a Prussian. Uh, he lived under the Prussian bureaucracy of the of the early 19th century, which was probably the closest thing that existed in the world at the time to the modern version of the state. So he had a much different view of the state. You know, he, he lived at a time when Leviathan was becoming a reality. And he was saying, well, I don't I don't really know if I like this Leviathan thing. So maybe we should uh, look in another direction. The state in some ways is probably the least um, the state in some ways is probably the least liberal thing um, there today. Um, is it, that's that's one of the problem, I think, with air quote liberal Hobbesians. I um, mean, this this shows up in sort of, you know, recently we have these all these police disputes sort of in the United States here, um, and that's the, the police are in some ways the first in the front line, la, first line, last line of the state. Um, so one of the things that you could just dispute with Hobbes is what exactly is the peace 
um, Hobbes is describing. Um, um, and that, that actually more on a more national level, international level. And that's something that Carl Schmitt witnessed to some extent firsthand. I mean, the U.S. U.S.-Soviet victory in World War II, and for that matter, World War One, U.S.-British victory in World War One, is not—they're not very. I mean, they're not very peaceful in ways. And, and people like Hummel have calculated all the, you know, the deaths of the state. And this is sort of more utilitarian analysis in that regard. Um, but what, to what extent is the peace? I mean, one one way we could attack Hobbes is that you could just argue that the peace Hobbes in the United States has huge prison population. In states like East Germany or, or North Korea, you know, they have probably lots of people in camps. And of course, you know, the, the, the left's, you know, the, the concentration camps as well. Um, so, you know, to what extent is the peace, you know, maybe, maybe it seems like the burden that the, the Hobbesian, the liberal Hobbesians, air quotes, the international liberal Hobbesians have to do would seem to be fairly high. Um, so to what extent do you agree with that? You know, it, you seem to think that the state is the most dangerous um, thing today. Um, would you agree? Well, yeah. Of any modern institution, I say the state is the most, by far, the most pernicious. I, I think a problem with Hobbes is that he really had no conception of how much power modern states would have. He lived in a time period where the kind of states that we have today were largely impossible just due to economic and technological limitations. Uh, I, don't, I think Hobbes would have, if he were alive today, would find it inconceivable, for example, that the that states have all the powers that they do now, that states literally have the technology where they could turn the whole planet into Bentham's panopticon. Um, that, you know, that I think if possibly if, state, if, if Hobbes were here today, he would reevaluate his positions on some of these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, if we look at the track record of the modern state, it's, uh, it, it has a horrific track record. Uh, now, of course, mainstream political theorists will point to things like Stalinism and Nazism and Maoism and say, well, yeah, of course, that's awful. But they'll say the problem there is there's a lack of democracy. Um, uh, I think, ironically, the Marxists probably have the best criticisms of many of the best criticisms of modern liberal democracy because they will turn that around and say, hey, wait a minute now. What about colonialism? What about uh, imperialism? What about the conquistadors? You know, what about uh, the fact that whole ethnic populations were, were uh, annihilated and all of these different things that have emerged in, uh, in modernity? Um, and if, and all of these things can be laid at the feet of the state. I mean, the same thing is true with, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a country like the United States, which is you know, one of the oldest liberal democracies in the world. Uh, you mentioned the, the massive prison population in the United States. Um, interestingly, though, most modern liberals don't seem to really grasp this. They seem to blame the perniciousness of the state on all kinds of other things. You know, they'll like Noam Chomsky is a famous example. You know, he's supposed to be an anarchist, but he doesn't really criticize the state as much as he criticizes corporations. And he says, well, the state is too under the control of corporations. So the real problem is that the state is not democratic enough. Um, and but 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 in the meantime, we need to strengthen the state to uh, restrain the to, to restrain private power. Now, I do agree with him in the sense that. The state doesn't exist in the vacuum, in a vacuum. 
like I would say the state in the narrow sense of the political government, you know, the politicians and government officials and that kind of stuff and state security services like the military and the police, all of that is part of a wider power elite nexus. I mean, you have that being connected to the financial system, the corporate system, the industrial system, the technological system, the media, the educational system, you know, all of the institutions that formulate the dominant values in the wider society, all of these things intersect with each other. So none of them exist in a vacuum. So I do think that's where some modern libertarians tend to tend to be a bit weak. Uh, but it still remains true that it's it's the state that wages war. It's the state that you know carries out capital punishment. Um, all of these kinds of things. I mean, like when I have a like like I know in the because I'm an American and I live in this large state that's a continent-wide state, um, you know, I, I've always had ongoing debates uh, with, say, liberals and others further to the left where I'll say, well, if Ohio was an independent nation, would Ohio have gone to war in Iraq? Would Ohio have gone to war in Vietnam? You know, probably not. Um, but unfortunately, this is a connection a lot of uh, people, modern liberals, aren't able to make. Um, it, it's interesting how they actually associate decentralization and private power with authoritarianism. You know, they'll say, yeah, well, you know, decentralization, that just means states' rights, which just means a defense of slavery or Jim Crow or something like that. Or they'll say when you defend the autonomy of institutions and civil society, well, that just means that fathers have the right to beat their wives or molest their daughters or something like that. So that's kind of the, the uh, framework that they seem to be thinking in which I think is a very limited one, but it is how they look at it. If Hobbes was, was alive today and was able to look back historically, uh, uh, would uh, Hobbes go, that was the kind of uh, leader that society needs? Who do you think from history he, he would be favorable towards? Uh, oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think that he would be interested in figures that created state systems that built civilizations that flourished. Um, I think he would probably be a fan of someone like Bismarck or maybe Metternich, uh, some of those 19th century Garibaldi, some of those 19th century nation builder types. Um, I, I don't think he would have been a fan of something, someone like say Thomas Jefferson or someone like uh, the French revolutionaries he would have seen that as a as an incitement to disorder and and um, breaking down institutions that otherwise worked pretty well. Um, he seems to me to have been the type that probably be, would have been like the uh, figures during the Enlightenment that admired the enlightened uh, the so-called enlightened despots. Uh, I suspect Hobbes probably would have been a fan of say Frederick the Great or probably uh, possibly. Um, can't remember her name. The, the, the Russian monarch that, that Voltaire considered to be a um, a great despot, an enlightened despot, Catherine the Great. Um, yeah, I, that that seems to me to be the kind of approach to statecraft that Hobbes seemed to admire. I don't think he would be a fan of modern democracy. So, <laughs> what do you think you think of someone like uh, Pinochet or Franco? Um, interest. What would Hobbes have thought of them? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, uh, Pinochet and Franco were two guys that would come to my mind as um, someone I thought Hobbes would be favorable towards uh, because um, they kept order, but they were sort of 
um, internally sort of like left people alone to some extent. Yeah, I think that could a case could be made for that. Uh, I think that Hobbes would have looked at the Spanish Civil War in particular and said, this is what we don't need. Uh, groups of ideological fanatics fighting for control over society. Um, you know, he would have certainly had a negative view of the left uh, side of the Spanish Civil War and probably substantial sectors of the right, like the phalangists and all of that, the Carlists. And he probably would have said, yeah, you know, Franco was the kind of guy who needed to step in and put down the iron fist and, and keep order. And he'd probably say that, you know, post-war Spain wasn't that bad of a place. Um, and Pinochet, yeah, um, I, you know, I don't think Tobbs would have been a fan of coups, of military coups. I, I think he probably would have said that that kind of disruption of society should only happen under emergency circumstances. Now, he may have assessed um, Pinochet to be have been a better leader from his, you know, according to his own value system than, than Salvador Allende. Um, but one thing Hobbes said at some somewhere in his writings was that his basic perspective was he just gives his loyalty to whoever is in power at the time. Like he said that, you know, when this group came to power, I was the first to declare my loyalty. And then when they left, I was the first to declare my loyalty to the new people. Um, so what he seems to uh, have, you know, he seems to have taken the point of view that, you know, I don't really care who's ruling as long as they're keeping basic order and they don't bother me and I'll, I'll be happily give them my loyalty in return. Uh, ironically, kind of like Carl Schmidt, um, you know, he was uh, he was an opponent of, of the National Socialists until they came to power. Then, then he was one. Uh, and then after they left, he no longer was one. Um, so um, I think that seems to have been the same basic view uh, Hobbes would have had. Well, we're approaching the end of the hour here. Um, Keith, do you have any final comments on Hobbes um, and Hobbes's relationship with uh, uh, anarchism in general? Is Hobbes defense on the Leviathan? Keith? Well, Hobbes is often thought of as being the, uh, as you were saying earlier, the antithetical, uh, as his thought is thought of as being antithetical to anarchism. Uh, I don't know that that's the case. I think you could certainly agree with his overall analysis of the human condition and totally reject his conclusions, uh, which I tend to do. I tend to think that he's basically correct that human beings are basically egocentric creatures who were motivated by self-interest and that human beings group off into tribes and groups. We don't have to call them tribes. You could call them just, just groups that uh, also have a co collective self-interest. And because different people in different groups have different self-interest, they, they clash with other people and other groups. And the big question is, how do you keep different groups from preying on each other? How do you uh, maintain individual liberty and how do you have some kind of functional economy in a material sense so that we can have food and shelter and all these things? And how do we keep Leviathan at bay in the process? You know, I think those are really the biggest political questions. I think Hobbes was right about that in the sense that, you know, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, you know, all the talk about virtue and all that kind of stuff is, is fine. Uh, but if you don't have these other things, then then you're uh, not doing so well. So uh, I think that's really the core issue. But I, I would reject the idea that you have to have or, or that you should have um, 
heavily concentrated power, some sort of absolute sovereign of the type that Hobbes envisioned. I tend to go the other way. Power should be spread out as much as possible. Power should be controlled and and decentralized and and uh, dispersed as much as possible. Which is why I'm an anarchist. You know, I, anarchism in all of its different forms, more than other philosophies, critiques systems of power. Uh, maybe not as much as they should in some instances. I mentioned uh, Noam Chomsky earlier. That's a, an example that stands out, uh, and there are plenty of others, uh, but. More than any other philosophy, I think anarchisms collectively uh, critique systems of power and generally advocate for the dispersal of power. And I think that's really the value, uh, the primary value, at least, of, of the anarchist outlook on politics as opposed to these other things. Um, it, it seems like liberalism, while in liberalism you do have some some of that, uh, liberalism, I think, refuses to recognize its own weaknesses. Um, you know, I think, for example, that mass democracy is problematic because it really is just a low-key civil war. I mean, that's in fact, that's one reason why U.S. politics is like it is today. If you look at U.S. politics like it is today, you have all these different groups who think of each other as existential enemies. So the other side must be defeated no matter what. Otherwise, the world is going to end. Now, you could argue, well, some of the people who have this mindset you know, have their own interesting view of reality that perhaps is a bit skewed or exaggerated. But it does reflect what happens when you have a society, say, with 331 million people living under the same political roof. And you've got some people who think, say, abortion is a sacred right and others who think abortion is a is a crime against humanity, or you've got some people who think animals should have the same rights as humans, and you think other, you have other people who think you know dog fighting ought to be legalized. Uh, you know, so uh, that's ultimately what Hobbes was talking about. What happens when you have a polity where you have all these folks who have irreconcilable differences? You know, they all end up fighting to the death, or they have some sort of uh, overarching leviathan imposed on them. I'd just now like to thank Keith for joining us again. It's been very enjoyable having you. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this show, please share it with your friends and family. And if you'd uh, like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcryingliberty at gmail.com. That's mindcryingliberty show at gmail.com.